I would like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Luke 24. But I'd like to read with you beginning at where our assurance of pardon left off. We'll start at verse 50 of Luke 23. Having watched Jesus die, his acquaintances and the women beholding his dying breath, we read, now, there, now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all, the, all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself. At what had happened. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of God through Christ our King. What a wonderful text we find here in Luke 24. The stunning glory of the risen Christ is so powerfully highlighted here. First by being set against the backdrop of the grief. Conveyed at the end of Luke 23. And then by the stunned, unexpected response of those who heard the news. Now Luke is well known among the gospel writers for his careful, factual recounting of the events of Jesus' life. So it's instructive for us to see how Jesus' resurrection is announced by Luke and how he describes it being received by the grieving disciples. But we need to recognize as we do that that of the four gospel accounts, each one of them relays this information differently. That's not because some of them had received false information that we should doubt the accounts by any means, but rather, each of these writers was led by God to emphasize different aspects of the same events that occurred. And so Matthew's account relates the the work and the words of the angels, kind of emphasizing the angelic visitors and recounting how the women met Jesus on the way back from the tomb. Mark, he had a, a succinct, a very brief account 
that emphasized the appearances of Jesus. And John provides details that the others simply omit with his typical emphasis on the individuals who are involved. But Luke, he provides this very matter-of-fact recounting of the events in which we see how the disciples responded to news that Jesus was dead no longer. And their responses are instructive for us because they're a call for us to respond in a way that honors God and draws us near to the Lord Jesus. And so that's the theme that we see in these 12 verses. Jesus' resurrection demands a response. It's a simple theme, but it's so essential for us to remember on this Easter Sunday that Jesus' resurrection demands our response And that response begins with the call to remember his promised sacrifice, which is our first point. Remember how Jesus' suffering ended. After his interaction with the criminal, which ended our text on Friday evening, Jesus was plunged into darkness for three hours. A time of intense suffering of the soul. At the end of which the veil was torn in the temple. Jesus committed his soul unto the Lord God, his heavenly Father, and he died. Then, as we read, his body was taken from the cross, wrapped in linen, sent into the tomb. All of that the women watched, observing what happened to him, where he was laid, all of the evidence of his death. Now the Sabbath has passed. The day is beginning to dawn and those same women return. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and others. They come early to prepare Jesus' body. But at the tomb, all is not as they anticipate. They expected to need help in rolling back the stone from the mouth of the tomb. But already it's been moved. They expected to see Jesus' body wrapped in fine linen, but His body is gone. The slab holding only folded linen cloth. This was not what they expected. And the spices affirm that, don't they? Ancient Jewish burial practices were different than ours. They didn't bury their loved ones in a casket sunk six feet into the ground. But rather, in that particular region, they tended to use caves or hollowed out places in the rocky outcroppings. And they would lay the body on a slab, having wrapped it in linen. And rather than embalming, they didn't have the equipment or the knowledge to embalm the way we do with fluids. They would use spices. And in this way, with the the linen wrapping and the spices, it would honor the one who had passed, honor the body that had brought them so much uh, blessing. And it would also limit the obvious uh, signs of decay. But understand, If these women expected that they might find, that they might find Jesus risen that morning, they would not have brought the spices. They would not have brought the preparations that were needed to entomb his body once and for all. Those spices show that they fully expected Jesus would be just where they last saw him, lying on the slab, lifeless and dead. And so when they get there, the text says they are greatly perplexed. They couldn't make out what happened. They couldn't figure out what might have happened to the body or what they should do now. 
But then visitors appear on the scene. Verse 4 tells us, Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Now that tells us how they looked. They had the appearance of men who shone greatly. But Matthew 28 makes it clear that these were in fact angels. The shining on their clothes, reflecting the heavenly glory. Because they had been sent to bring a message from heaven. That's what angel, angelos, means. It means messenger. And these messengers had a message of supreme importance. At the start, the women weren't prepared to hear that message. They were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. That's a typical response to seeing angels, isn't it? How many times when angels appear in the Bible, their first words are, Do not be afraid. Because that's the natural reaction of those who behold them. It's such an unexpected thing. But these angels, though the women fear, though they've fallen to the ground, they, they bring a word of encouragement. And so they speak and they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? The dead, of course, of course refers to the corpses in the various tombs in that area. But... Clearly, the living must refer to Jesus. The implication is that these these poor women are looking for one who is alive in the midst of the tombs. For one who is not dead in the midst of the grave. He is not here, they say, but he is risen. Explicitly, they tell the women. Jesus is not Dead. Death has not held him. He's been restored to the fullness of life. What amazing news that must have been to hear. It's not the news they expected. All all of these women had witnessed his crucifixion. They saw him die. They saw his limp body brought down from the cross. They watched as Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped his corpse and laid it in the tomb. And now, incomprehensibly, they're told he's not there anymore. He's not dead any longer. The angels perceived their confusion. And so they say, remember. Remember how He spoke to you when He was still in Galilee. During His teaching ministry, Jesus often taught them what must soon occur. How He must be betrayed into the hand of sinful men. How He must suffer and die for the sins of His people. How He must show the people the sign of Jonah being swallowed up for three days before being brought back to life. All of the scriptures he must fulfill, including the intense suffering related in Psalm 22 and the saving sacrifice described in Isaiah 53 and the promise of Isaiah 25. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever or the promise of Hosea 13. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. All of these scriptures and more. Jesus had told them he must fulfill them all. Now, now the angels tell them, remember. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hand of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Thus the angels explained the empty tomb by appealing to Jesus' own instruction. He foretold all that had to come to pass. And now it was. And so verse 8 says they remembered his words. 
hearing the angels speak, their eyes, their minds, their hearts were opened. When Jesus first spoke this teaching, it, it really barely registered with them. Luke chapter 18 says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. That's when Jesus told them that he had to be handed over to sinful men and scourged and killed, and then later rise to life. They didn't understand at the time. Because what we don't understand, what confuses us, we tend to set aside, don't we? We figure we'll deal with that later, and we we put it in a locked little closet in our minds. And that's what they had done with these words. That's why they weren't expecting Jesus to have been brought back to life, though He had told them. But now, the angels calling them to remember what Jesus said, now the pieces of the puzzle start to come together. They remember anew what Jesus said, and His words begin to make sense. And suddenly they see the glory and the greatness of what Jesus had accomplished. Now, why is that important for us? Well, We too hear the words of Jesus, but too often we fail to wrestle with their significance. In your daily devotions, in your family devotions, you've heard Him declare that He is God, come down from heaven as a man. That He is the King, come to establish an eternal kingdom. That in Him we receive the fullness of life for all eternity. We've heard Jesus teach about these things. But how often do we wrestle with them? How often do we really let their significance sink into our hearts? It, it seems to abstract. Sometimes we feel like we just can't wrap our minds around it or we don't have time to allow our minds to wrap around it. But now, in the shadow of that empty tomb, we must remember what Jesus did and why He did it. The grave could not hold Him. Nor will it hold those who belong to Him. Death had no authority over our Savior because His kingly power is greater. And thus we have no need to fear death or any other power that threatens us. How immense is the comfort of that reality in the light of the current crisis. The coronavirus has not had a significant impact in our immediate vicinity, has it? Certainly, Des Moines... Iowa City, they have seen their share, but here in Marion we have a few cases. But that could change so quickly. Certainly it has in other parts of the country where they had very little and all of a sudden they had much. And should that happen, we desperately need the comfort of Jesus' empty tomb. We need the knowledge that Jesus has conquered sin and death. We need the knowledge that death has no power over us. We need the confidence that Jesus' victory is ours if we are trusting in Him. If we are to have that confidence, brothers and sisters, we must remember what Jesus accomplished with His victorious resurrection. Jesus conquered death and every lesser enemy as well. Now, we don't yet see that. Romans or 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be brought under His feet will be death. But He's already conquered it. He's already a victor over it. He's already transformed it for His people. And we must remember, if we are to have that comfort for ourselves. Well, for the women, they remembered. And as they remembered, they acted. They returned to the eleven apostles and all the rest. 
And there among the disciples, they reported Jesus' perfect victory. And that's our second point. They reported Jesus' second, uh, Jesus' perfect victory. Now, just a quick note on the parallel accounts here. Mark 16 tells us that most of the women said nothing about what they saw and heard. But Mary Magdalene was different. She not only heard the angels, she also, though Luke doesn't mention it, encountered Jesus himself. And Mary responded by rushing to tell the disciples who were mourning and weeping. And what she told them was comprehensive. She related their discovery at the tomb. She spoke of the angels and the message they brought. She described the truths they had imparted and also the, the teachings they had remembered. And as Mary spoke, the others confirmed her word, establishing her testimony by witnesses. Now, my friends, understand this testimony. It was both a privilege for these women and their duty. They had just learned that Jesus, their teacher and their friend, had risen from the dead, victorious over the grave, triumphant over that ancient enemy. How could they not share that amazing news? How could they not tell all who were willing to hear? How could they remain silent in the face of their friend's grief? And by the same token, how can we remain silent? <coughs> Folks, the message of verse 9 is it's really quite simple. But the lesson it contains is absolutely essential for us. Because we too have heard the news of Jesus' resurrection. We know and we have studied the promises of the law and the prophets concerning why Jesus had to come and what He came to accomplish and the promises that He would work to fulfill. We know too the reality described in the New Testament. The conception and birth of God as a man. The perfect sinless life of God among men. How He suffered unjustly to pay the debt of our justice. How He died under the curse of God. But also how He rose. His work to save us completed. His victory over all our enemies absolute. Even over death. We've heard all of that. We know all of that and more. We know, we know the significance of His resurrection. How Paul celebrates that significance in 1 Corinthians 15, saying, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's the significance of Him rising and the implications of that resurrection. We see later in that chapter, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the importance of what Jesus did in the world. Hearing that, it scorns. But despite their scorn, despite their mockery, we must proclaim this good news. This surpassingly excellent news that Christ is risen and in Him we have life eternal. And more than that, brothers and sisters, our calling, our privilege, our blessing as Christians is to report His victory to all who will hear. We declare the living hope of 1 Peter 1. 
that according to His abundant mercy, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in that living hope, we've been given an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. By Jesus, we have received the promise of life eternal, which according to Romans 8 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So not only do we have a hope, not only do we have an inheritance awaiting us, but we have the assurance that just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead. And so we confess, we confess with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is the message we're sent with. That is the calling that is laid upon us. That, brothers and sisters is what we are called to do unto His glory regardless of how the people respond. But they will respond. And that's what we see in the last section. They will respond. If we bring the message in the way that we're called to bring it. You see, this proclamation of what Jesus has done, it cannot be a mere recitation of facts. That's why, I'll be honest, I'm not a terribly large fan of Door knocking and tracts. You can cover a lot of houses doing that. You can feel like you've done a lot. You've done your duty for evangelism. Yeah, we knocked on 30 house doors today. We talked to 15 people. We gave out 40 tracts. Even hit some people on the sidewalk. But how many of those tracts ended up in the trash? How many of them actually got read? And if they did get read, what difference did they make? Their words on a piece of paper. Not the living Word of God, but, but explanations often dry and dusty. How much more impact, how much more power is conveyed when speaking to those who know us, those who've experienced our love, those who've seen our character, when speaking to them, we reveal our personal conviction of what the Lord has done and of what the Lord has done for us. That's what we need to do. And that's what we find in this last part of our text. When these women reported what they saw, there were two distinct reactions. The first was disbelief. Verse 11 tells us, Their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. That word rendered idle tales is the Greek word lyros. It means, well, something you made up in delirium. If you you had a a sick person who was experiencing a, a high fever and they started babbling in delirium, that would be lyros. If you had someone whose mental incapacity caused them to not be able to tell truth from falsehood, and they were speaking of things that were not so, that would be lyros. 
This is quite an insult to these women to, to call their testimony Lyros. But remember, the disciples were grieving. All of their hopes had been wrapped up in Jesus. They regarded Him rightly as their Savior and their King. But now they had watched Him die on the cross. Three days had passed. They're crushed. They're confused. And what the women told them seems infinitely too good to be true. So they refused to believe what the women said. Now don't be too quick to condemn them. Dismissing the resurrection testimony of these women. That was their way of protecting their already crushed hearts. The world had crushed Jesus and now their spirit was being crushed as well. And you know, our spirits can be crushed by a world that is committed to unbelief. The world mocks the idea of a resurrection. They claim that it sounds like a a fairy tale. They regard us who believe it as simpletons. To folks who hear that, who receive that kind of scorn from the world, we're tempted at times to give in. To either just be quiet about what we believe, or even to accommodate ourselves, to find ways to read Scripture so that it's not offensive. So that it's not so unbelievable to our neighbors. I just this last week read a supposedly Reformed minister say that, you know, in our enlightened age, we've come to understand that Scripture is not a fact-based account. It's a true fable. It's not necessarily factually accurate according to the history or the science that's recounted there. But the underlying concepts, he says, are true. That's, that's baloney. That's mumbo-jumbo. That's a, a far too intelligent man's way of getting around the reality that the Word of God and the truths that it reveals are offensive to a world that doesn't want to believe in God. We're subject to that temptation. We too can be tempted either to be silent or to to come up with some theory, maybe not as blatant as that of the true fable, but some theory that will allow us to be a little more palatable in what we say to our neighbors. But folks, we must not... The resurrection of Jesus, physically, bodily, and in truth, is absolutely essential to the faith which we hold. Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, declares that the gospel which saves us, it includes as a fact the sure testimony that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, And then he recounts how he was seen by all of these witnesses in the 40 days after. And then a little later on, the apostle boldly declares, if Christ is not risen, he's talking physically, bodily, in truth, risen from the dead. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. However, Paul unwaveringly declares that Jesus did rise from the dead. That's the clear testimony of those who were there. They saw the angels. They encountered Jesus face to face. They dashed back to tell the disciples not just what they thought, not just what they academically believed, not even what Jesus had told them before. They came rushing back to tell the disciples, this is what we saw, this is what we know, this is what we believe. And God used that testimony. 
We don't see how he used that testimony until a little later with those disciples who received it skeptically. But understand that God was using the women to plant a seed in their hearts. That seed would grow soon enough. But for Peter, it began to sprout immediately. Peter doesn't seem to speak a word. He doesn't seem to mock the women. But instead, Peter arose and ran to the tomb. In typical... In Peter's typical fashion of of impulsively dashing, he heads for the tomb. John 19 tells us that the Apostle John ran with him. And these two, they don't see Jesus, but they see a tomb that's empty. They see linen cloths lying on the stone slab. They see evidence that perfectly corresponds to what the women have told them. And so having seen... Peter departed marveling to himself at what had happened. He was amazed. His mind reeled at what it all meant. But his mind pricked, his heart stirred. God used that seed that the women planted to make Peter believe and to cause him to become a mighty witness to Jesus' resurrection, not just among the Jews, but even among the Gentiles. God will use the testimony of our conviction, of our experience, in the same way today. Hearing us talk about how Jesus rose from the dead and therefore conquered, thereby conquered death for us. Some folks will disbelieve. They will mock us. They'll say it's a fairy tale. I can't believe... I I had such respect for you. I can't believe that you would believe something that ridiculous. But you don't know what God will do with that seed. It seems as though it's fallen on the hard-packed dirt of the path where nothing can grow. But, But who knows but that God might cause that seed to be kicked into fertile soil. And that somewhere down the road they'll remember the, the convicting testimony that you spoke to them. And God will use it to draw them to Christ. But others, like Peter, hearing your word, your testimony... They'll want to know more and they'll run. They'll run not not to the tomb, but they'll run to the word that testifies about the tomb. So very often God uses the testimony of our conviction, weak though we are. He uses that testimony to prick the hearts of men and to lead them back to Him. So our calling this Easter Sunday, our calling is simple but profound. Our calling is to speak, convinced of the Savior's resurrection, understanding the freedom that it brings to you. Speak that others might hear and that the seed might be planted in them. Your calling is not to transform hearts. Your calling is not to make converts. Your calling, brothers and sisters, is to speak, having remembered His sacrifice Eager to report what you now know. Your calling is to bring the powerful testimony of your conviction that Jesus is risen, that He is a victor over sin and death, and that in Him we have life eternal and abundant, which no one can take away. Amen. Let us pray. Brothers and sisters, we thank You. Or God, <laughs> Lord our God, we thank You that we as brothers and sisters can gather together and hear this testimony that You have inspired in Your Word. Lord, it seems incredible to the world. 
that someone could die such a horrific death and yet three days later be alive. Alive, not in struggling, but alive and triumphant, victorious over death and living eternally forevermore. But we know that it happened because you have convinced us through your Spirit. And we pray that you would give us the ability, not just to remember for our own sake, but to teach others with conviction and with passion to teach others what You have done and why it's so very important. And Father, we pray that You would use our testimony. We're weak. We're, we're not able to bring some scholarly defense of Jesus' resurrection, some convincing argument. But You, Lord, You are able to set that truth before those who are yours, to implant it in their hearts and to cause that seed to bring forth an abundant crop of fruit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that and that through us, your people, you would receive much glory and honor. All this we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.